kill me? You might as well kill me. I'm your retainer. I follow a code. I've always given you my respect. So that's why you got that big fucking gun to my head? Welcome to the Movie Club, a co-presentation of uh, Movie Patron and Film Junk. My name is Sean, and we've got an interesting little experiment here for you guys today. Um, maybe we can all go around the table and just introduce ourselves. I'm Sean from FilmJunk.com. Uh, I'm Jay from Film Junk as well. I am Andrew. I'm from MoviePatron.com. And uh, Kurt from Movie Patron slash Twitch. And I think I'm the only guy that is stateside as well in this conversation, too. Yes, it's interesting how that worked out that way. Um, but yeah, so uh, Jay and I are actually in St. Catharines, Kurt in Toronto, and uh, Andrew, you're in Mini- Minneapolis. Minneapolis. So, yeah, it's kind of cool. We're uh, doing this currently over Skype, so uh, you'll have to forgive us if uh, some of the audio uh, quality isn't the greatest. But um, So here's the idea. We're going to try and get together once a month with sort of a rotating cast of uh, movie bloggers, podcasters, what have you, and we're going to discuss a couple of older films um, sort of the idea is kind of like a book club thing, but uh, with movies. And so this week we're discussing uh, Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, and uh, also uh, Todd Field's Little Children. So um, I guess, what do you guys want to start with? We, uh, we can we can start with the, the ghost dog, the way of the samurai. I have to admit that it's it's been a while since I've seen that movie, but it's still stuck in my brain pretty well. I mean, uh, Jim Jarmusch is pretty. What's the word? I guess kind of an iconoclast, uh, and um, and you know, Forrest Whitaker. This was like one of the first movies I. It, it just stuck with me in his. Yeah, his well, abilities as an actor really—that's where it really came out for me. I was going to say, like, one of the first things that struck me because I just, after you guys suggested this movie, it's kind of one of those movies that I had been meaning to watch for years and had never seen. Uh, I've only seen a couple of Jarmusch's movies, but um, when I picked it up, I kind of—I totally had forgotten that Forrest Whitaker was the main guy in the movie, and it was kind of interesting because. You know, he's, you know, after doing um, The Last King of Scotland, he's kind of a big deal now. And going back and watching this movie, I thought was pretty interesting because I thought he was I thought he was great in the movie. But, um, Kurt, this was kind of your suggestion. Um, Yeah, and I suggested it completely blind. Uh, I'm like you. I I was coming in. uh, I've seen a few of Jarmusch's films. I was coming in from this movie's been sitting in my movie what years uh, despite the fact that I'm a huge Forrest Whitaker fan but oddly enough haven't seen Lost King of Scotland um, and I suggested it as a way of uh, you know finally sitting down and watching the movie and uh, yeah seeing what 
other people had to say about it. Uh, well, I guess also maybe worth mentioning, uh, the, the point of this isn't necessarily just to review the movie, right? I mean, we're kind of, I guess, just digging into it and kind of uh, just talking about things we liked, things we didn't like, and just sort of contextualizing it, I guess. Is that the idea here? You got it from my end. I, reviewing the film is not really, yeah, not really what I want. I, I just want to uh, talk about, um, you know, what you yeah, like or dislike or, or what catches you rather than, you know, um, although if there's whatever, some sort of film cultural tidbits or whatever that people want to uh, um Right, so you know, in the future, when we when we do something like this, we'll we'll let listeners know what types or what titles exactly that we'll be talking about. So, the, I mean, it might get a little bit spoilerific along the way here because, like you said, we're going to really be digging into it and maybe particular scenes, particular things that we liked or didn't like about it. And uh, so, this will be sort of the first our first episode, I guess, where we don't. The listener doesn't have a heads up beforehand about what we're going to be talking about from, but in the future, it shouldn't be a problem as far as spoilers go. You should be able to actually know way in advance and even watch the movie yourself if you haven't seen it and and sort of be part of the discussion almost. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, this this movie is, what, six years old now or something? Or right. more than that? 99. Right, so I guess it's safe to say if, uh, you know, we're, we're not spoiling any new stuff here, so maybe we, we might dig into things a little bit, so if you haven't seen the movie, uh, be warned. But um, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll start by pointing out one thing that I felt about this film. I, I had seen it previously, but I rewatched it, <clears throat> and I had... Uh, actually forgotten how just completely cool the movie is um it you know with it's got these uh title cards that come up throughout the film that have these uh quotes from a, i guess it's kind of like the the way of the samurai and um watching i what i loved about it is forrest whitaker's character is completely into this Japanese culture he you know he is uh he lives the life of a samurai but he's a black man and he still uh has his own culture like he, throughout the film he listens to hip hop and you've got the in as far as the soundtrack the perfect representation of that samurai culture clashing with hip hop with a soundtrack produced by the RZA who after this, went on to uh, do the soundtrack for the Kill Bill movies. Well, um, I think it's interesting, too, because he was in the Wu-Tang Clan, yeah. and that group alone kind of embodies sort of what this movie is about, which is kind of the whole, like, East meets West kind of thing. Right. With a whole urban kind of feel to it. Yeah. I mean, even in the movie, he even not only does he, like, listen to hip-hop, but he... He's got the cornrow hairdo, and he he's got the hoodie. I mean, he sort of dresses like a like a typical street thug, kind of. Yeah, it even brings in the uh, the mob culture. Like, it is a great uh, fusion of many different cultures into a a real stew in the movie. 
Yeah, I, I really like the um, the mob stuff because it was played so cartoony. I mean, you you literally have mobsters watching cartoons throughout the entire movie, and the, all the clips of the cartoons they're watching have some sort of relevance to what's going on in the film. And um, you know, some of the funniest scenes come out of the mob scenes. And it's just, you know, these mobsters sitting at a table discussing, like there's one scene in particular where they're trying to figure out where Ghost Dog got his name from. And, um, you know, just their their ignorance, I guess, towards other cultures in a way, but but also, oddly, their, their respect and knowledge for the hip-hop culture, <laughs> which <laughs> may uh, not be entirely realistic, but is is a pretty funny moment. Meaning the one gangster that knows his public enemy very well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess throughout Jarmusch's films, there's kind of that similar theme of breaking down some sort of barrier. I mean, I, I recently reviewed uh, Night on Earth for Film Junk, and I it was the first time I'd seen it. And the, the premise of that film is it's four short stories all set in a taxi cab around the world. And every one of those stories has some sort of barrier being broken. You've got, you know, a class barrier. There's one where there's a, a, a black man who's trying to get to the Bronx and he's picked up by a Russian cabbie um, by, played by, what's his name? Uh, he was in Eastern Promises. He was the main um, Russian the mobster, the father. Ar- Sorry, what was it? Armin Mueller-Stahl. Yeah, yeah. And he's awesome in it, and uh, it totally reminded me of of Ghost Dog because it's just this, you know. Uh, even as far as language barrier, you've got another awesome character in this movie, which is Ghost Dog's best friend, who uh, is the man who works at the the ice cream truck who speaks French. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that character is played off in the movie too, because it's like he's saying all this stuff, and of course watching it you can read the subtitles and you know what he's saying but all the other characters apparently can't understand him but in a way they kind of can and it's like uh, yeah it's totally about you know just cultures coming together i did not have the subtitles on oh really my french is not exactly that strong although i could catch tidbits here and there so i was watching it from the point of view that the um the haitian ice cream uh uh, character, I, I could not understand him. Although in this movie, the body language tells so much of the movie that um, I mean, I think you could watch the movie on mute and get loads out of it. Like you said, the gangster expressions and the way even they sit around the table or they posture, and certainly Forrest Whitaker, it's a very um, body language performance. And and even the the uh, ice cream uh, vendor, you could. You could get a lot just from his body language, which I which I pretty much had to because I didn't have the subtitles on. It's, I wasn't yeah. sure whether the subtitles were supposed to be there or not. Yeah, I, I don't know because I didn't want to cheat, and I I don't know because I never caught the film theatrically whether they subtitled that character or not. I think I, in my uh, in my copy that I saw, I'm I'm pretty sure that the subtitles were there, and I just thought it was a fascinating relationship because. <clears throat> Like you said, nobody can understand this guy, yet they seem to be just having a conversation back and forth, and if I remember correctly, they're even almost sort of having two different conversations with each other. One guy's talking about one thing, and, and, and 
Ghost Dog is talking about another thing, yet somehow they sort of form a rapport of some kind. And, um, yeah, like, it's, I just remember that being really interesting as well. I don't know if this is, like, completely crazy or, or just in my own head, but watching the movie, I was reminded of Rocky. Um, it, it just reminded me of the, in the first Rocky, <clears throat> the early scenes when he's still, uh, he's a kind of a hitman, not a hitman, but, uh, a, a, a collector for a loan shark. And, uh, it's just Rocky who, who's this kind of intimidating guy, but he has a soft side to him and he's just, he has his neighborhood and he's interacting with like the young Marie character and, and he has his friends throughout the neighborhood and it almost reminded me if Rocky had, rather than getting into boxing, um, gotten into, you know, samurai books and ended up <laughs> killing <Yeah>. mobsters. <laughs> yeah, I can see the parallel there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I thought, you know, like <clears throat> the whole urban thing. And I mean, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Jim Jarmusch, he, does he do all his movies in New York City? Is that right? Or is it? Well, mm. Dead Man is Dead definitely man not in New York City. <laughs> okay. Because, like, I, I don't know if, like, I'm assuming that's where this was set. I don't know for sure. But, uh, yeah, I, the, if you notice the, in the movie, uh, the license plates uh, don't actually have, um, uh, yeah, on them. it I, just says the highway state and, you know, like the, the industrial state, I think it was. State. But I think it's supposed to be, it's, it looks a lot like Baltimore, too. Like I was watching The Wire. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to bring up, actually, was the license plate. And I was wondering, like, you know, because I, I don't know, for me, it's like I think of New York City, but then it's like he was purposely trying to make it not New York City or trying to make it anywhere. Like, I don't know. I don't even know where it was shot necessarily, but um, I believe that's where he's from, is it not? New York? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Probably. Well, I can just IMDb him right now. Oh, that's that's I'm perfect. Sure. I mean, I think uh, the only Jarmuth I've only seen a couple. Like I've seen Broken Flowers, and that sort of travels all around with true, yeah, the Bill, the Bill Murray one. And then the other one is that I've seen is Coffee and Cigarettes. Right. I think that you know, although it's all taking place indoors, I do get the sense that it's in some kind of city and urban like it, it does feel oh so it's possible that he's got a real not quite a woody allen yeah know. it's it says here in his mini biography it says he came to new york city from akron ohio and i guess he went to uh columbia and nyu film school so i don't i'm assuming he's just stayed there but one thing i've always felt in his movies is they play um <clears throat> like a uh like anthology films when even when they're not literally anthology films like coffee and cigarettes or night on earth it it feels like broken flowers specifically feels like a series of stories that are you know connected by bill murray going on this journey and and ghost dog i don't know if i felt that entirely with this movie but there was breaks specific breaks with the fades to black that suggest yeah, and the titles that suggest... Yeah, almost like chapters. Yeah, yeah. And I, I liked how the titles sort of related to the end of each chapter. Uh, the, the one specifically about mentioning uh, the samurai keeping Rouge up his sleeve in case he needs to uh, 
I don't know, change his appearance or something. And at that moment, he's switching the license plates on the car. Right. I mean, each one of them is like, uh, you know, uh, like an author in a novel will put another author's quote uh, on each chapter almost as if to give you a flavor of what that chapter is going to accomplish. And I love the... uh, I love any movie that uses intertitles, and this one in particular with the... Not only are they intertitles, uh, but they're intertitles where the the actor is narrating them. So you're kind of reading them yourself, but you're also getting the character narrating them. And when the torch is sort of passed at the end of the film uh, with the little girl that he talks to all the time, you notice she reads the last title card, right? Right. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty cool. Almost like you've just seen... The uh, rather than the story of Ghost Dog, you've just seen the the, the, cycle the story of, of of this girl. Um, <laughs> like like you know, you see Ghost Dog being uh, beaten by thugs and rescued by that mobster as his sort of uh, background story, and it's like this entire movie was a background story to whatever that little girl is going to end up doing. And uh, on the RZA note, uh, just. Off the, I don't know a lot. I know they've scored a lot, or he's scored a number of films, but the three that immediately come to mind all have that element in it. It may just be coincidence, but um, Kill Bill, of course, the opening chapter in, in Volume 1 has the uh, Uma Thurman setting up the little girl by, by letting her live and say, you know, come back and find me in 20 years or whatever if you want uh, revenge. And then they also did the Japanese animated crossed over fused with uh, urban culture uh, the Afro Samurai which affects the whole move the whole animated series is is uh, this sort of you know cycle of the next one coming up and uh, you know avenging filling the shoes of or whatever of, of the first one it's just a weird coincidence but you're right it's almost like the whole film is just a prequel to what could be another story mm-hmm um, one thing I really like about Jarmusch is his humor as well, which I know I had mentioned with the mobsters, but uh, even beyond the mobsters, like almost the the samurai stuff, uh, I guess juxtaposed with the, the mobsters, it's like uh, Forrest Whitaker's character is is very graceful and constantly meditating and, and um, you know, laying with his pigeons and... And then you cut to the mobsters who are, you know, old. And I, for me, it was funny because you've got these these old guys running around with sawed-off shotguns. And, you know, there's the one character actor, I don't know his name, but he's got a really uh, kind of throaty voice that it sounds like he's had cancer or something. And he's been in other mob movies. And, and it's just humorous because these are the, you know, the, the bad guys, these these people who are... Like haven't let go of this organization that's basically past its prime, I guess. And you know, when you're comparing it to Forrest Whitaker's uh, daily routine and how he lives his life, it's it's almost ridiculous watching these old men, you know, go to these rooftops looking for the black man with the pigeons, and you know, accidentally shooting someone who is obviously not the same guy. Yeah, they're. Um, have 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 any of you guys seen uh, Fishing with John? I want to see it. Huge on my list. Um, 
yeah, I, that's the collection of uh, short stories of uh, him literally just taking people out fishing. Yeah, it's John Lurie who is in uh, Down by Law and Stranger Than Paradise, and and they're they're it's him taking his actor buddies out fishing, and there's one with Tom Waits and and Willem Dafoe, and and there's the first episode is with Jim Jarmusch, and. That 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 show is probably one of the funniest shows I've ever seen, and the episode with Jarmish specifically is hilarious. And you can see he's got this really like his voice is really monotone, and he's got this dry sense of humor, and, and it totally comes through in his his films. Um, there's a documentary that he uh, he did he kind of hosts uh, called Tigrero where he goes to uh, this, I think it's a country in South America with Samuel Fuller uh, to visit this old tribe that Fuller was shooting a a movie called Tigrero uh, in the 50s that got canned. And him and Samuel Fuller together are like just this weird comedic team. uh, Fuller is anything but ironic and laid back Fuller is like very earnest and in your face yeah and you know he's the opposite (laughs) he's chomping on a cigar the whole time and he's it's just really funny so I'd recommend checking that out definitely but it it's uh you know you can see even though his humor is very subtle it's it's uh definitely there and and especially in this movie it's interesting that you mentioned those two things because they play into Jarmusch's themes of, of, you know, crossing cultures that are not normally crossed and don't mesh very well. Both the fishing and, uh, you know, with with Sam Fuller, I, they're personalities that don't seem like they should fit, and sort of that's part of the fun of watching Ghost Dog is that, you know, you you've got the rap culture, you've got the the mob culture, you've got um, you know, a lot of other characters that are, you know, their own little worlds. Uh, I mean, even the little girl in the film is, you know, sort of the domestic world, as close as you can get to domestic in a Jarmusch film. But uh, it's fun to just watch them sort of bounce off one another and mix in various different and and interesting ways. Uh, And the cartoon element in the movie, uh, you brought it up earlier, that... That's one thing that I found really fascinating is not only do the cartoons like the titles sort of give a flavor of what that scene is, um, but did you notice that the cartoons seem to be advancing? In but, chronology? <laughs> yeah, and and if you... Another thing that the, the movie goes over again and again is, you know, cultures die and you have to let cultures go, which is sort of the opposite of all the characters in the movie because... Forrest Whitaker is living by a, you know, 300-year, more or less, gone culture, um, and the mobsters are, you know, aging and, 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 and fading away, um, and, yeah, it, I echoed that as it started out with, like, Betty Boop, and it ended up with Itchy and Scratchy. Yeah. One thing that, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. <laughs> well, one thing I was just going to mention was, you know, there's the the whole samurai undertones, and the one thing I really loved was the the big showdown at the end where it's like master versus student, and the way that it kind of worked out because it, you know, obviously the guy 
the the mobster guy that is sort of the master isn't really his master, but somehow or other the relationship kind of came about. And uh, I don't know, was there like I don't know a ton about samurai movies, but were there any sort of like hidden references to things in there that you guys noticed or? The most overt thing is, and and this is the the the, the brilliance of of, uh, of how Ghost Dog plays on that level. The the brilliance of it is that, yeah, far more like a Wild West showdown. And then if you look at over the years with the Italian spaghetti westerns and uh, uh, and then westerns remaking samurai films and samurai films remaking westerns, there is your ultimate example of cultural appropriation. I mean, right now there's a Takashi Miike film uh, called uh, Sukiyaki Western Django, which the whole point of that movie is to watch a samurai film which is appropriating from a Western, which is appropriating from an Italian Western, which is appropriating from an American Western, which originally was appropriating from a Japanese samurai film. So it's this weird circle of everything coming back around. And so playing that, like, I mean, they explicitly reference when he shows down his uh, master that, that scene, they explicitly reference High Noon uh, to really draw attention to the fact that it's far more like a... Uh, a western than a samurai film, but again, in cinema, and obviously Jarmusch is, uh, you know, a film student as much as he is a filmmaker. Um, the western and the samurai film are so mashed together already that uh, you can't really untangle them anymore. I was gonna say that's actually a slight beef I remember that I had with the movie going into it. I was sort of expecting. Um, a little bit more of the samurai and the, the, I guess the samurai physical physical abilities um, the culture is obviously there and his lifestyle and, and ideals and how he looks at life but I think you know in the poster I think he's holding a, a sword or something a samurai sword and I remember in the film correct me if I'm wrong he very rarely uses a sword it's it's mostly gunplay I the sort of western yeah that's um, a, a gotcha. and I, but and i remember kind of being a little miffed about that because i was going in expecting this urban guy who who does takes revenge or kills people whatever using swords and it ends up being he's just sort of like any other hitman however he does sort of use his guns the way he moves and stuff is sort of like a, a samurai like he holds it behind his head and then smoothly brings it around um, does that, I don't know, did that bother anybody else? Like, there just wasn't much of the samurai action that I thought was going to be there a little bit. Uh, I kind of, I did think the same thing at first, but uh, it's kind of weird because, I don't know, like, uh, like thinking about it now in my head to actually have him, like, there was, wasn't there a scene with him on the rooftop where he was kind of doing training with a sword or something? Yeah, I'm. See, for me, I kind of liked that he didn't use a sword. I I thought I uh, I liked how his ideals were based in samurai, but his actions were based in, I guess, modern. More modern, yeah. Uh, I was gonna say based in in hip hop, but that would <laughs> mean that I'm saying that all hip hop lovers kill with guns. <laughs> but um, you know what I mean. Well, for me. 
going into Ghost Dog, the very fact that you just did not know at any point where this movie was going to go, it is so unpredictable in its visual cues, it's unpredictable, like you said, you know, it's it's called Way of the Samurai, and, um, you know, he doesn't really literally fight with a, uh, with a samurai sword, uh, I mean, he trains with it in one scene, but... Um, I found that to be the chief pleasure of, of Ghost. You just sort of have to sit back. It's not a very fast-paced film. It really goes at a slow pace. I mean, there's even parts of the movie where, you know, the movie's quite simply boring. It's like it's daring you to just keep watching it. And I love movies like that. I, I, I mean, I just love movies that say, look, here's the pace with which we're going to go. We're not really in a hurry to get anywhere. We're just going to move along and observe these people. And that's what you do. I mean, the camera spends a lot of time just looking at Forrest Whitaker, looking at something else. Well, I remember... Sorry. Go ahead. I, I remember a specific moment where I, I consciously noticed that. And it was the uh, the one of the first scenes where Forrest Whitaker puts a CD... He's driving, he puts a CD in, and it's uh, just him driving... Uh, I guess back into the city and it sticks with them for the whole thing. And you've got, you know, the dissolves and whatnot. And then from there you go to the rooftop with him, you know, and it's almost, I guess maybe like a a representation of his meditation, maybe Um, like maybe listening to his, that's the other thing. It reminded me of broken flowers where whenever uh, Bill Murray got into his car, he had that same song that he played on his CD yeah. every time and it's like maybe the the music for Forrest Whitaker is a meditation in the same way that you know his um his training with his sword is um because there's a specific attention to uh him putting a CD in and and listening to it it's not just a, a audio cue in the background you're he's paying direct attention to that and and each CD that he pops in of course, he keeps stealing cars over the course of the movie, and each CD that he pops in, this is again on that sort of cultural or whatever you happen to appropriate, whatever car he steals, of course, he listens to their CDs. So it's like well, he steals the woman's Jaguar, and it's like a jazz score. And then, you know, the Mercedes he steals at the beginning has a rap song. You know, I mean, so you get this, you know, he lives in, you know, obviously he has his own code and his own set of principles, but... You know, when he's out prowling around, in, in, he is making these sort of baby steps. I mean, even when he speaks with the, you know, with the ice cream guy, with the little girl, I mean, even his, you know, his relationship with the, with the mobster, he makes these baby steps in, you know, outside of his world, even though he remains rooted in it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So I, I don't know if you guys, uh, I, I didn't think we would do any sort of rating or anything because we're not reviewing this, but I mean, do you want to do like an overall kind of just summary of what we uh, thought of the film? Well, you can go around the table if you want. Sure. Yeah, for me, um, you know, as I said in the beginning, it's my own fault, but I, I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I just didn't have enough time to catch it before we started talking. Um I'll probably be in the minority where I would say I didn't love it. I liked it quite a bit, but um, I remember, uh, well, like I said, they're just, 
maybe it was a little bit of the expectation there. I didn't see the the whole samurai thing that I thought I would at the beginning. I loved all the, um, I loved a lot of the interaction and relationships between Ghost Dog and the various characters. And then I also, like Kurt just said, there are parts that are slow and downright, you know, in a couple parts actually a little bit boring. And so, you know, I don't know, like on a, I guess I wouldn't give it a rating just because I haven't seen it, but I thought it was pretty good. I would definitely, but that would probably be it. I would watch it one more time. And so there you go. That's my overall thought on it. Kurt? Okay. Um, mine over, Ghost Dog for me, having just watched it yesterday for the first time, um, it I could already see myself coming back to this movie again and again and again because it's one of these ultimate hanging out movies. It's not about the plot. It, there's a lot of character stuff, but it's not really about the characters. I think a lot of Jarmusch's films are, are just about maintaining a certain vibe or a certain mood, and I love the mood right from the opening shot when it follows the pigeon, and then it shows it from the bird's eye point of view, and then it shows the pigeon, and it takes a good like four minutes with that great RZA sort of fusion of of hip hop and uh, you know like Japanese flutes or something, uh, and it just way to the main character. And any movie that takes its kind of time, I can handle the slow spots because I'm just into the texture of the movie. And I think there's lots of fun. Ultimately, it is quite a fun movie when you watch it. But maybe the first time is a more intense experience because you really don't know where anyone is going to go in this movie. It's very unpredictable, and I like that about it. Sean? Yeah, um, I, I kind of agree with that. Like, I this was my first time watching it. And, um, you know, like, first impression, there were moments where it was a little slow, and, and I'm kind of wondering, okay, what's what's this building to, you know? And But looking back on it and having had this conversation, I mean, I, there's so much that's just interesting and cool about this movie and um you know i think it definitely plays a little bit more to you know obviously like an art house crowd sort of thing and if you don't know who jim jarmusch is then maybe this isn't uh your kind of movie but you know like it's it's not a, a straight up comedy but it has you know some definite funny moments and uh yeah it's really kind of unlike anything i've ever seen before so you know other than broken flowers and movies like that so um yeah i don't know i check it out if you can for sure and i'm i will agree as well i i do like the hanging out aspect of it and um again i'll go back to rocky uh not that it's an exact comparison but i i get the same feeling watching this uh as i did watching the the first rocky film that i enjoyed just sitting back and watching him walk around his neighborhood and interact with people and it it wasn't the as far as ghost dog it wasn't the the action sequences which i would wouldn't really call them action sequences but uh it was that that i enjoyed and and just the cool um feel of it like the soundtrack and the whole uh sort of respect uh among the characters this sort of over the top respect for their traditions and and um, respect for each other, even when they're kind of killing each other. <laughs> but 
but um, I enjoyed it a lot, and it was my second time watching it. I actually liked it better the second time. So, see, I, I bet I'm gonna like it a little bit better the second time too, especially after having, you know, like Sean said, after having this conversation, there'll be a little bit more to notice and chew on. I think. Yeah, for These sure. Types of movies always play like that style, the hanging out type of movie. They play better and better each time because it's like you're you're coming back to, you know friends or you know just right. hang out with them again so yeah well i've watched uh death proof on dvd three times now and it's gotten better every time so yeah yeah no disagreement here the ultimate hangout movie oh yeah <laughs> okay so little children is the uh second movie we're talking about here today obviously a little bit of a newer uh film uh, directed by Todd Field and based on a novel. Uh, who wrote the novel? Do you guys know? Is it Tom Parada? Tom Parada, yeah. Yeah, the guy who wrote the um, election, which was also turned into a film. Right, okay. So um, I guess uh, I'm not quite sure where to start with this one, but I did just watch it uh, a couple days ago for the first time myself. So. Really? Okay. Yep. I um well I saw it in the theater. I was the first, when it came out. Um, I actually went to the theater by myself because I couldn't convince anybody to go see it with me. So, and then um, I've watched it a couple times on DVD. I think the last time I watched it was like maybe two weeks ago. Actually, I I ended up purchasing it and said, "All right, I'm going to watch it again." So I've seen it like three times and just watched it again a couple weeks ago. Um. Oh, go ahead. No, you first. Okay. Uh, I actually spontaneously walked into it for its big premiere, um, and I was supposed to go see another film, which I couldn't make it to, so I just sort of... I'm not a big fan of In the Bedroom. Uh, I don't hate the movie. I just feel that it has a lot of problems. But I went sort of randomly into uh, Little Children and it ended up being one of my favorite films at that year's Toronto Film Festival which I man- then managed to catch in the theater when it played and then I have bought the DVD so I've uh, it's been several months since I've seen it uh, whenever the DVD was released but uh, I've seen it several times and I am also a latecomer to that movie I saw it for the first time two months ago when I bought it and I've watched it three times since then and you'll be glad to know that I, I bought it after listening to your your show um, the second that I heard you guys say that it was uh, written by Tom Parada I had to check it out but um, well, maybe we can I think when you talked about it on the Film Junk podcast a while ago you kind of mentioned this to preface your review of it and um, you know, maybe you guys can say what you think about this, but this movie was marketed very strangely. Um, you know, it, like for me, when I first heard about it, I didn't really know what kind of movie it was. And I, I had heard some reviews saying it was a dark comedy. And that's kind of what got me interested in it. But, uh, you know, you look at the DVD cover or the, the movie poster and you know who's in it. And it kind of seems like just, uh, you know, just a, a romance drama. You're not really sure. But there's some pretty wicked dark humor in this. Well, the trailer, I love the trailer. And I we'd seen the trailer a long time ago. And 
I, I liked the trailer a lot. Uh, I thought it was effective, but after seeing it, I thought the trailer totally m- mismatched the tone uh, because, you know, I, I, I watched the trailer after hearing you guys talk about it. I was like, oh, yeah, that movie. I, I looked at the trailer and I'm thinking, I don't see the Tom Parada in this because it's uh, it almost at some point in the trailer feels like a thriller because you see uh, the main character running down the street and, you know, you're hearing the train whistle and it's very ominous. Uh, it almost reminded me of like the shining or something, but, um, the humor isn't in the trailer. I know that when I first saw the trailer, I immediately said there will not be a trailer to come out this year that tops that for pure intensity. It's just a great, it starts from a stark image and it builds its way up to that thundering train rushing by your, what doesn't quite capture the tone of the film. I mean, that trailer, it excited me that, you know, because uh, it was gripping. But, uh, yeah, Todd Field, uh, the director, described, describes the movie as a satirical melodrama, which, if that is a genre, it's a very, very small genre. Maybe you could shoehorn something like Magnolia in, but not really. Um, yeah, it... it I guess it feels like other um, other uh, Tom Parada adapted. It does feel a bit like Election, and actually, if Alexander Payne, uh, who directed Election, a number of his films are, are about the closest equivalent to the vibe that's going on in uh, in this movie. I actually, it kind of felt for me like a light version of Todd Solon's. Um, I I had the same reaction to a lot of the stuff that was going on in the film that I have to Todd Solon's in that I was laughing at things that aren't that are very dark I guess but also the uneasiness like there there's some moments in little children that are very um uneasy I guess but not quite at the level of Solon's not not as cynical even though Tom Parada is seemingly one of the most cynical people on the face of the earth I think Todd Solon still has him beat but uh, definitely, I think if if you like happiness, um, you're not you're gonna like this. You're not gonna get the same level of intensity. Well, maybe the same level, just a different intensity, I guess. One of those moments that you mentioned uh, in there actually has the same actress almost playing the same character, Jane Seymour. I yeah, and I laughed when she came up because in the Brave One, in a very minor role. Um, actually, I've seen her play plays um, the blind date to the um, uh, pedophile character, um, uh, the Bad News Bears guy. Uh, his, his name is escaping me right now. Um, and yeah, she she played the same role or a very similar role in uh, Todd Solondz's Happiness. Yes. Absolutely. And yeah, I remember that shot when he he's going to his date, and then it cuts to a shot of him sitting at you know, the, the dinner, the restaurant dinner table, and you can only see her back. And I knew right away, I was like, don't tell me that this is the same person. And as soon as it cut to her, I laughed and I knew exactly what was going to happen because (laughs) she gets shit on so bad and happiness (laughs) throughout that whole movie. And I'm like, this is perfect. Like it could have been a crossover, you know, from this, this exact same character, but I was very happy to see her in there. 
a little bit of meta foreshadowing. If you're aware of this other film, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's coming. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm in agreement with you on the marketing. Like I remember being when I walked out of the theater. Besides being blown away and loving the movie, I was really angry that I had I was I had just seen this amazing movie in just like a rep cinema, and nobody was there. I'd never seen other than the trailer online. I don't really remember seeing the trailer anywhere else, and I just remember thinking, well, now this is Todd Field, who was nominated, at least uh, in the bedroom, you know, it was up for Best Picture. I don't know if his directing was. It's Kate Winslet, you know, who's constantly nominated. This should have, the studio should be pushing this. Well, it kind of, uh, it reminded me a little bit of uh, American Beauty as well, and I mean, that movie certainly reached the masses, and I don't see why this one couldn't have. But. Yeah, I think this is sort of an American beauty. I mean, it's a lot. It's more. I don't dream like, but it's definitely more like a like a story, like a fairy tale kind of version of American Beauty. Um, but but yeah, it it goes. It's very. It runs a lot of parallels, I think. With well, that melodrama as a film technique is pretty much dead. Again, the only big melodrama I've seen recently um, like like an honest melodrama not a soapy melodrama but Wiz Magnolia and satire never sells. Satire has got to be the least profitable venture to get into if you're making it you're ruling out most of the audience that don't key into satire. So a satirical melodrama you've just funneled it down to a very limited audience. I, I think the studio realized that this wasn't a movie that they could sell to everyone, and they basically just more or less dumped it. It, it really didn't open very high, expanded. And uh, even though it got a few nominations and various, you know, the umpteen billion award things that happened between Christmas and March, but yeah, I don't know. Did this movie get discovered on DVD? Like, obviously, all of us have watched it several times. And we like the, all like the film, but uh, I don't think this movie got any traction because of because of the way the story is told. Well, I don't think it came here. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure it didn't. And we, you know, in St. Catharines, we we get a very select um, amount of films here, and you know, occasionally we'll get something that's. Uh, in maybe a limited release that goes a little bit wider, but I don't think this ever came here. So for us, it it was a DVD discovery, I guess. Mm-hmm. I wonder how well it's been selling. Or, uh, this is not too great. I mean, I'm sure the Oscar nominations helped it along a little bit, but I, yeah, I doubt many people... A lot of people who walk around that outer outer wall of Blockbuster or whatever... They judge, you know. They judge a lot of the movies they see just based on the cover, and the cover isn't all that alluring for. No, not really. Let, let me. The names above the title are exactly. Well, yeah. Emily, Kate Winslet. Well, yeah, that's um, true. I just wanted to jump into uh, something like that surprised me kind of right off the bat about this movie, and I guess maybe it shouldn't have if I kind of had known ahead of time that it, it was Tom Parada who who wrote it, but. The, the narration in this movie I thought was uh, a really uh, a cool element and I know like narration can go 
you know, two ways in movies. You know, sometimes it's just there to sort of hold things together and it just gets in the way. But I think a lot of times when you get a movie that's adapted from a book, you need that narration to sort of almost give you a sense of, you know, especially like something where there's, you know, a lot of uh, inner monologue and stuff like that. Um, it really kind of brings a little bit of the book out to the screen for you. And I, th- I got that feeling from this. What did you guys think of that? Yeah, that was one of the things that I really loved about this movie because this narration is completely different than, say, um, a Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption or something like this. This guy is, I think you said, like just sort of almost like reading a book. After a character says a line, the narrator will say, Sarah thought as she looked over in dismay at the other people at the park or whatever and just the way he sort of read it like right out of a novel and and not to mention his his tonal qualities sounds like sort of like a old PBS documentary and um, yeah I remember as soon as his voice kicked in I think within the first couple minutes of the movie I just went wow that's a great touch yeah I I gotta say i'm i have a thing for narration i actually like narration even when i know it's being used to plug holes although recently i saw idiocracy and i the narration and that was too painfully obvious that it was being used to plug holes uh but i don't know if that was really at the fault of the filmmaker or because of the problems they had with releasing that film but in this the narration reminded me of uh thing it, it was almost like uh, you know, in when they have like a sociological study or something, and and like it reminded me of this, like the scene in Ghostbusters Two where Egon uh, is taking Sigourney Weaver and showing her the the room with the little kid where they they give her a a kitten and then they take it away and they you know read the results and it re- yeah it reminded me of like as though we're stand that like the TV is a one way glass kind of thing and there's some like asshole doctor who's like telling us the whole time you know what's happening to these people and and we're as we're watching them kind of fall apart and and turn on each other and whatnot and i liked it a lot i mean maybe it's just his voice like you said it's got that pbs documentary feel and it's like you're watching uh you know wild animals betraying each other or you know uh yeah that's a great analogy. Well, I actually believe that the, the guy they hired, that's his day job, is for the BBC to do these sort of narration voiceover jobs. And they hired him, I believe, specifically to play God in, in the movie. He is the people are thinking. And it allows you as the audience. And it also really goes into dark places with the satire because yeah you're 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 treating this movie as as a sociology experiment which it very very much is I mean, well it doesn't the, isn't there even a line at the very beginning of the movie in the narration where it mentions that she's like uh it, i think it almost i think it uses that word like sociological or something where she's watching the people in the park and i'm thinking to myself like what is is kate winslet actually a doctor like that's her job or something like that was the first thing yeah I when it when it says she's pretending that rather than being one of those people that she's actually studying them from afar right and uh the movie is ultimately about the way people pass judgment and 
the first step before you pass judgment on someone is to take yourself outside, <laughs> you know, so that, especially when you're looking like asshole doctor that's passing judgment. And I think that that opening scene with her passing judgment on the, um, the, the other women in the park, it echoes kind of you watching it. And then, of course, when Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson make their choices and get in their situations, then you start to pass judgment on them. And the movie really plays with how people take snapshots or little things. You, you see someone, uh, you know, do something across the road and, and immediately you've snapped judgment on them. And it really mulls that over, like, like you said, on several levels, from the narrator point of view, from Kate Winslet's point of view within the movie, and, and, and then, of course, you watching the movie uh, and, and judging it. And that's one of the fascinating uh, aspects of the movie. Not the only one, but one of them. Well, and another thing that I got from it was, <clears throat> um, I guess could be literally taken from the title, Little Children, which... Um, I think the main reason I, I picked up on this was Kate Winslet's character. She's, you know, you, she's likable in it, even though she's despicable in many ways. And uh, but she treats her child horribly. Like for some reason, she is, you know, she loves this guy, and she's, you know, uh, getting into this weird fantasy relationship. And she seems like a good person that's just making a wrong decision. But then you see her interacting with her kid, and she's completely ignoring the kid. And then you see her and uh, I can't remember what's the other actor's name from Hard Candy. Patrick right. Them when they're together, they're ignoring the kids. Like they're they're getting together and they're doing things uh, without even thinking about what you know that is going on with their children. And it was at that point. Children rather than. Right, they're they're acting like children, and then they're they're ignoring their own children. And then when it was when I was trying to figure out why is this pedophile here, like the, this seems like a, a weird, heavy-handed thing to throw in here, almost for shock value or something. And I kind of got the idea that you know the the pedophile obviously had some issue when he grew up. He was raped, or you know. Uh, I can't even remember if it's touched upon, but obviously there's something that happened in his upbringing that has turned him into what he is. And when I was thinking of their children as they're having this affair, I was thinking, okay, so their kids are going to grow up with some sort of weird, uh, you know, mental issue because their parents were, were assholes to them, like especially Kate Winslet, because there's that scene where the kid comes up with the the thing that she made her when uh, when she was with that woman, the the picture frame or whatever. And Kate Winslet is in the bathroom uh, looking at herself in the mirror, um, and she you know says, "Just a minute, just a minute." And she's a complete bitch to her kid, and the kid just puts it on the table and leaves. And it's like you're she's basically rearing that 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 child into, into this wrong. Like it's just she's it's like she's creating someone that's going to grow up to have an issue like the the molester had maybe not that extreme but maybe he's the extreme representation of what happens when you you don't raise someone properly or, or there's something in the household that can turn someone you know easily whether it's extreme or or something as small as your your mom having an affair with a man while you're in the other room 
Go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, and I mean, it's not even uh, her. Look at her husband too, who is totally, you know, sucked into this porn, online porn thing too, where he's not really, at least it, they don't they don't show it. He's not really too into the kids' uh, life either. Right. On at work all day and then hiding in the office all night. So, yeah. Well, I think you know that's definitely part of what you know Todd Field or I guess Tom Parada in this case is getting at it is that you know you're looking at all these so-called grown-ups living their life but you know they're I guess kind of having a midlife crisis or whatever and ultimately they just want to get back to a point where they have no responsibilities and can just do whatever the hell they want but there is an interesting scene towards the end where Kate Winslet is crying and her daughter is actually consoling her Mm -hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting and there's there's one weird moment in the movie that I completely misread. I don't know about you guys, but there's a scene where uh, he's Patrick Wilson is playing the football game, uh, and it's his big game. And then you know the game ends, and you hear cheering. And he turns and he looks, and Kate Winslet is on the in the bleachers, jumping up and down and cheering. I read that as him being creeped out that she was there, like she's stalking him or something. I don't know if anyone else read it like that. Like she's at that point becoming, becoming obsessed. Maybe it's because if I think it followed the scene where she was watching him go on vacation with his wife and she was crying. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you might be right. He kind of looks up and he just kind of has this weird look on his face. Like, Holy crap. She's here watching me. But then, but then it goes in a different direction. Yeah. He really, all of a sudden he's into it. And I can't remember it's after the game and the two of them are talking. I can't remember which one of them suggests that they just throw away their lives and run away together. Well, I think it's him. Yeah, that's when they have this yeah, little you role watch, reversal you thing. Watch them, you actually watch them both regress. He's regressing back to his football days, and she, in her own way, is regressing back to a cheerleader. And maybe that weird look on Patrick Wilson's face is that he's tacitly aware of that fact for that moment <laughs> and then they move on because you know they can have you know hot teenage making out on the football field after the game which happens <laughs> so yeah the, yeah you you actually watch them both regress in that scene i mean sure. many scenes but that scene it's really in your face and he's like you know he's skipping classes to watch kids skateboard and thinking about you know well this is what i was doing when i was 18 so there's another aspect of him regressing to childhood. Before we move off, I, I wanted to go back for one second to the kid thing. Um, because I, the other way, you guys were saying, you know, the way Kate Winslet was ignoring her kid, um, and, uh, you know, that was uh, vicious. If you look from uh, um, the pedophile's mom, is the other way. She's, you know, doing everything for him everything for him and you know that is equally negative and there's a scene in the movie one of my favorite scenes in the movie is this great homage to Jaws when he goes and takes a dip in the pool and oh, yeah. the parents go into ultra protective mode <laughs> like I mean so they're so protective that I mean like it's in a public. It's in a hugely public space. I mean, 
what is this guy going to do? But the parents, the fear that overtakes the parents and then rubs off to the kids, the, old, the opposite of Kate Winslet, of, you know, like, letting her kid play the parent, like, consoling her, or, you know, not bringing her kids lunch or whatever, you know, all the ignoring things that she does. I find the other women in the park swing really far the other way, so the movie's targeting them as, you know, if you're hovering over your kid in every possible way, that rubs off on the kid negative. And when uh, Jackie Earl Haley dives in the pool and one or two parents become aware of who he is, you actually get this great wave of fear that the kids don't even understand what's going on, but they feel this fear and then there's all these shots of these kids crying <laughs> and the mothers haven't actually they haven't actually moved forward quite yet it's this sense where the kids actually uh, you know gather from it before the action actually happens and I I thought I, I, that, that scene really resonated yeah that was uh, an awesome scene I also wanted to J-Rup the football scenes already but I just wanted to say how I, th- I loved how they were shot, you know, like just so he's so heroic and everything and just like, you know, something out of like Friday Night Lights or something maybe almost, you know, like just so over the top, but so fun to watch too. My my favorite, one of my favorite scenes is the football scene, What? but only because, not only because, but partly because I love the narrator at that point is hilarious. I, I don't know if it's intentionally hilarious, but it sounds like... Uh, HBO's, you know, Friday Night Football or whatever it's called, where he all of a sudden he comes on and he says, the Falcons were down three to nothing and the, the Giants were coming back and they had one mission. And I just, when the narrator actually has a humorous moment, it was, that was brilliant too. Now, what did you guys think of this in comparison? What did you guys think of this in comparison to election? Uh, like the differences and the similarities? This is much darker, I think. Like, I, uh, first of all, I haven't seen Election since college, which was a long time ago. But if I remember, Election was almost like kind of cartoony in a way, whereas this seemed much more dramatic and dark. I, For me, Election. It also, I, one of the things I loved about Election with was with was how it played with the narrator, because in Election, the narrator keeps switching. You know, yeah. different characters narrate themselves. Um, I didn't find Election was one of my favorite films of the year that it came out. It really knocked my socks off. And Little Children had the exact same effect. And and I guess the message there is that I should be reading Tom Parada's novels. But I thought Little Children had a dark, a much more uh, causticness to it. And make no mistake, uh, um, you know. Uh, Election is far from cotton candy. It's got a pretty dark edge to it. But Alexander Payne seems to have a lighter touch. Uh, I found uh, Todd Field made it quite apocalyptic. And because Little Children was post 9-11, I don't know if the novel was, but I found the film really worked in a lot of uh, 9-11 culture fear a lot of elements that have came out from uh, like, uh, have been amplified after 9/11, and I actually read Little Children as one of the best post 9/11 films to come out. Uh, you know, uh, since then. 
Yeah, that's true, especially with the uh, the one character who feels like it's his duty to constantly keep watch over the pedophile's house, even though nothing bad's happening. It reminded that reminded me of. Uh, have you seen? I I don't know if I'm going to be able to remember the name of the movie, but the Wim Wenders movie with the girl from Dawson's Creek. Uh, oh yes, um, I know the movie you're talking. Oh yeah, so do I, and I forget. It's, what it's like called. Land of the Free or or something. Land of Plenty. It's from the Leonard Cohen song. Right. Uh, Land of Plenty. He yeah. he kind of reminded me of the character in that. Absolutely, yeah, because he just takes in that film. He that's his entire life mission. He's like a one man unit, <laughs> yeah, driving around. Uh, but I, I, the interesting thing about Little Children was um, uh, that character um, Noah Emmerich. He he was almost doing it to compensate for his you know his his own failures. I didn't get that in Land of Plenty so much, but in this film. It was like, I failed at this, I failed at that, I failed at that, I'm just going to do this. More than any of the characters, uh, Noah Emmerich is a series of failures lined up. And and that's saying something, because this movie's quite aggressive about, you know, taking its characters down a peg. And that actually... Go ahead. I was just going to say, that guy plays the best buddy characters ever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And he, um, I mean... When you say his past experiences, he actually had a more than just a failure where he actually hurt a child, or you know. And I, and so when you say he was compensating, it's like he's trying to yeah just make up for in his own mind probably what he had done in the past. With you don't really hear the whole story, but you get the sense that he really hurt a kid by by accident. And I think he you know that scarred him too. And I uh, actually recently read what I, I believe it's Tom Parada's first novel called The Wishbones. And this guy must have something uh, with uh, affairs because that entire book is about a man who is in a wedding band uh, and he lives with his parents still and he ends up getting uh, engaged to his on and off high school sweetheart but then ends up, as they're preparing for the wedding, uh, getting into an affair with someone that he meets at one of his wedding gigs. And the entire book is just detailing this affair. So, um, you know, with Election, uh, the affair between Matthew Broderick's character and, and the uh, friend of his wife. and uh, Well, for that matter, the teacher and Tracy Flick. Yeah, yeah. This guy is the master at... Uh, writing affairs it seems <laughs> well, or one of the masters thing an affair as a platform for so many different things like you you could write little children off of maybe the trailer missells it a bit as an as an affair movie but that is really like you know the the tip of the iceberg you just it just keeps going down with the amount of Things like I mean, it goes after upscale suburbanites. It goes after the culture of fear. It goes after so many things, and it does it, you know, in such a way that it doesn't feel overstuffed or like you know they can throw that football scene in there, and it doesn't feel like it pulls you out of the movie. It's just this great little vignette that uh, that just you know it just spins in with the rest of the things that are going on. Maybe that's the difference between. Uh Little Children and the Todd Solondz films is thinking of, of Little Children. I'm trying to think of who isn't 
despicable in a way. I mean, uh, whether or not they have some sort of, you know, uh, point where they kind of uh, redeem themselves. But someone, the, the characters in this and election, a lot of them are, are pretty re, re, uh, despicable, except for the children. The children are the ones that are, you know, the innocent people. In Todd Solon's films, even the children are despicable. <laughs> I mean, in, in Welcome to the Dollhouse, you've got uh, Don Wiener's little sister that's a brat and, you know, will uh, basically do anything to get her sister in trouble. You've got the kid who threatens to rape her at three o'clock. And uh, in, you know, storytelling, there's the kid who's constantly saying these strange things to that the maid uh, so Todd Solons is willing to go that extra step and make his ch- child characters as despicable as the adults. <laughs> I, I, when you say that, I totally was trying to think of all the different characters in the movie, and the only one that I think that isn't really despicable in any way is the uh, mother, the pedophile's mother, who, like Kurt said, just does everything she can to help her son and, and just be a good mother. Well, I, I found her a little despicable in that she sort of didn't address. It's like she just kind of ignored, you know, the fact that he did what he did. Like she she plays it down too much. That's what moms do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's actually this before I forget. There's one thing that I was kind of confused with, and in thinking of characters that weren't despicable, there's the friend of Kate Winslet, the older woman who brings her to the book club. She wasn't. She was fine. But there's that moment where she's babysitting the kid as Kate Winslet goes on that weekend. And uh, when she comes back, she's, you know, oh, how was she? She was good. She was good. And Kate Winslet offers the money, her the money oh, yeah. for her service. And the woman has this reaction to it that's completely like she's offended. And she leaves. Like, she's basically, almost. Yeah. she storms out. And I, I didn't entirely... I was trying to figure out... I wonder if the kid... Like mentioned something about mommy being with another man, or if it was just the the fact that Kate Winslet offered her money and it made it seem like it was you know it it was a service rather than a friend helping a friend or what? I don't know what you guys well, thought. I think, I think you're closer with the with the second aspect. It's like um, she. I think she has clued in the reason why she was leaving just from the little bit of dialogue that they had. Um, she can tell that she's not being honest with her. And when the money comes into the equation, it's like uh, Kate Winslet was buying her judgment. And she storms out because her judgment isn't for sale, and she's just insulted that mm. you know that Kate Winslet can relieve her guilt in some way, shape, or form by by throwing. I wow, that's not what I took from it at all. I I thought that exactly what you had thought, Jay, was that. The girl, the little girl, had probably mentioned a few things over the weekend, and I think this lady just sort of figured it out. I, I didn't. I don't know. I thought it was normal to offer somebody money for taking care of their kid for the weekend, but I, um, yeah, to me it felt like the this lady knew something that was going on and just didn't want to be involved, but you could tell was very disapproving. But yeah, yeah. I I got that too, but when I watched it again. The thing that had me questioning maybe the other thing was the fact that her tone seemed to change exactly when the money was offered. 
because if it, yeah. yeah, she's very, you know, when she's asked, asked how she was, oh, she was great. And she, you know, was very happy until the money came into play. But I don't know. And just before she storms off, she pauses for like something and then just says oh, goodbye and walks around the corner. Yeah. Too. So, yeah. Should we touch upon the book club scene since we're sort of doing the same thing here? Uh, that was the one scene in the movie I hated. I think this movie is a perfect movie, except I found the the book club and the fact that the book club is doing Madame Bovary, <laughs> which obviously is so... It, it was just... That was just too obvious for me. Too heavy-handed. And not only is the is it the book club and the book club doing Madame Bovary, but they have to explicitly, syllable by syllable, word by word, spell it out uh, for you. Uh, you know, Kate Winslet's character arc and, and the fact that, uh, um, you know, she sympathizes with, uh, with Madame Bovary. And then, of course, you have the other woman that can't fathom you know why someone would do this, and, and it was like, it was like Kevin's in Chasing Amy. The only scene I hate in Chasing Amy is the scene where Kevin walks in and has to explain the movie to the audience. I find that offensive, and that was the only weakness. And I was just curious as to what your thoughts were on that particular scene in the movie. Well, I didn't have a, a problem with it really. I mean, I, <clears throat> I see what you're you're getting at as far as it being uh obvious and maybe a little heavy-handed but the one thing that i did like about it was you know there's the the woman that's the adversary that you know is the the complete bitch and she you know expresses her hatred for the book and how she just doesn't get it but i did like how there was the older women that were uh open-minded and and trying just trying to figure out you know the reasoning behind it all there's and, some humor there too. Where yeah, talking and, about the the sex and stuff, and kind of yeah. And I I liked it that it just left it completely up in the air as far as whether or not it was morally uh, wrong for her to be doing what she was doing. Like, you know, it's up to the person watching, I guess. And most people say it it is wrong, but you know, you can say, well, if she's unhappy and her husband is sniffing panties <laughs> while she's you know downstairs, um, maybe she's doing the right thing, but. I, I did like how, you know, there's the three points of view. There's the one that's completely on the one side of thinking it's completely wrong. There's Kate Winslet who's trying to tell herself it isn't or maybe come to the realization that it isn't so bad. And then there's the old women who you would expect to be the least open-minded that are, are actually, you know, giving it some thought and not completely against that character. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess... Uh I, at that point, I was kind of thinking to myself, like, is this book club going to become a major, like, component of the movie from here on end? Because I think that would have been too much. It would have been, like, too much self-referentialism and stuff. But it was just really the one scene, and from then on, it, it, it was never really turned up again. So I was okay with it. I can, I might as well mention the scene that I thought made this not quite, well, I actually do think it's a perfect film, but except for one particular scene. Uh, and that scene is in the middle. Jennifer Connelly, who plays Patrick Wilson's wife, she's she's not a major player in the movie, but she's a, a documentary filmmaker. And at one point in the movie, they cut to her 
um, editing this documentary, and in the documentary, they show about a 35-second clip of this little kid um, talking about how his mother or father or somebody died in the war in Iraq, and it was just like completely out of left field. I felt like there was this huge movie with commentary on the Iraq war, and you know, I'm doesn't matter how you feel about the war. It just felt like not, it just didn't feel like it belonged there at all. It was like this huge smudge and it was just like Todd Field or, or uh, I don't know if Parada wrote it in there in the screenplay or if it's in the novel or what, but it's like they just wanted to quickly get in there 30 seconds of, of commentary for the war and I thought it was the only part of this whole movie that's really going to make the movie not timeless. Um, otherwise, Otherwise, the whole movie is completely timeless, and it'll be it'll be perfect all the way through. But for some reason, that that scene just really bugged me. That's funny. You made a good joke there. Uh, you said it came out of left field. One because the film was directed by Todd Field, and two, <laughs> it's very left wing. But um, I like that scene. I, I don't I don't love it. And you know, if it disappeared, it, it wouldn't be a great loss to the movie. Since I really do view this movie as a great post 9-11 you know uh, snapshot of, of one aspect of America uh, you know like a, like a sociological snapshot uh, throwing that in there is the filmmakers giving at least a little bit of a head nod to say yeah maybe we feel that way too and, and that's why I think that scene exists in there well I, I looked at it as almost uh, an extension again of the idea of children being affected by something uh, happening in their lives, and the, in that case, the extreme of you know losing a parent, which is basically in a, a way what happens throughout this movie. The kids temporarily lose a parent, and um, as far as it being time not being timeless, I I don't know if I could place if it was the ninety uh, one Iraq War or this Iraq War. Or down the road, maybe a, okay. a, a different Iraq war. <laughs> Who knows? But I, I do see your point of like you know the the kind of just getting the jab in there sort of thing. But I I think it almost would have stood out to me more if they had avoided it, like if they had made it a a fake war or like a a less relevant war now. Like it, it reminds me of this might be a little bit of a tangent, but. Uh, Sean, I know you were reading this at one point, the David Mamet book, uh, Bambi versus Godzilla. And there's a chapter in there where he talks about how uh, using the, the number 555 in a film uh, is distracting or using uh, an actor who can play piano, playing piano, because you're thinking to yourself, wow, that actor can play piano rather than you know if it was just shot naturally. Then again, on the other hand, if they avoid showing their hands, you'll think, oh, wow, that actor can't play piano. But it, I, I kind of yeah. felt that if it, if it, you know, it, it could have, they could have used a different example of a kid losing a child, maybe to cancer or something or whatever. But if they are going to do something related to a war, I think that's the war to do right now. It would have stood out for me if it wasn't that. Sure, I, I kind of agree with that. I'm just, I just think that the whole the scene is not even necessary. It doesn't do anything, for well, story, except for what Kurt said about how it's sort of a post nine eleven thing, and I can kind of buy that. But otherwise, I just felt like it was well, a Jennifer unnecessary clip. I think it shows that Jennifer Connelly, Connelly's character is the only one who's 
I was, sympathetic to a child. I was just going to say, she's the only one who isn't really despicable when you brought that up. And like, you know, the only bad thing, the only bad quality about her character, she's kind of bossy, I guess, towards her husband. But I'll well, see. I actually think she's quite a villainous character because she seems to. Again, I guess I come at this from a, 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 a different angle than you guys, but I found there's a scene early in the film where uh, their kid um, comes into bed and she uh, she basically shuts her husband out right. for the sake of letting the kid sleep in the bed when, you know, I don't know, as a parent myself, I don't think the kids should come and sleep in the bed. You You can't destroy your marriage for the sake of your kids either and I found they use Jennifer Connelly as you know the other side I mean they use the other women in the park as well but she's to the point where she's emasculated her husband um, for the sake of her kid too far um, so I don't think that she comes off looking like uh, a hero character and and you should it should also be noted that you know she spends a lot of her time at home doing documentary on kids rather than with her own kid on one level as well um, alright well I, I are we kind of uh, wrapping things up here then guys what are you thinking yeah I mean around the table. yeah I don't have a lot more to say we can sort of just do a round table uh, summary I guess alright well I'll start um, <laughs> I yeah I love the movie um, definitely you know, it's too bad I didn't see it when it first came out, but, you know, hey, that's what DVD's for. And, um, yeah, it's all the movies we've mentioned, you know, the, the Todd Solons and the, the Alexander Payne movies and even American Beauty and stuff like that. If any of that kind of satire kind of stuff appeals to you, that kind of just kind of criticizes, like, American life in some way, uh, with a little bit of humor, but, you know, with characters you care about, then I think, you know, that pretty much is this movie. So definitely check it out. I was going to wrap up next because I can see when Sean is wrapping, done wrapping up, but I just lost what I was going to say, so someone else go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can go. Uh, first of all, well, I of all the movies that came out in 2006 other than United 93 I thought this was the best movie and it was that's what I was going to say <laughs> I, I didn't get to see it in 2006 and if I had it would have been uh, on. it would have been number 2 still to United 93 because that was my number 1 but it would have uh, I think it would have bumped up over Children of Men Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is just slightly be- I remember in my review actually first of all it was 5 out of 5 stars um, and also, from pretty much like the first thirty seconds of this movie, I was I was into it. Um, partly because of the image, and somebody watching the TV, which you don't know who it is necessarily. Uh, and then when the narrator kicks in, from then on, I knew that I was going to love this movie. And when I got to the end, I, I didn't realize how much I was going to love it. And I was absolutely blown away. And um, yeah, I can see myself coming back to this movie over and over again. Fantastic. So I've seen the film four times, and I mean, when I saw it at Toronto, I um, I had to run home and just write about it immediately because the movie just plants so many seeds in your head. And and um, 
like Sean said before, the um, the Todd Salons and and um, just that style of film tends to resonate with me a lot. And I remember I I told everyone that I could think of to go and watch this movie, even though it. <laughs> So I'm a, I'm a big avid supporter. I've got a little bit of a problem with the Madame Bovary. That's where he starts getting into some of the issues I had with uh, the heavy-handedness of, of of in the bedroom. But I I love the I love the satire of the film, and I love the performances. And I really hope, and it looks like it's certainly the case um, that Patrick Wilson, after the uh, Angels in America TV show, and then Hard Candy. Um, and now this, that, that he gets a profile to continue to... Uh, because he's, he's really a standout. I mean, you expect Jennifer Conley, you expect Kate Winslet, but he really is a standout with his character, with the skateboarders and the football. And, and his character is maybe one of the more, most complicated ones in the, uh, in the entire film. And uh, so, yeah, uh, it's not a movie that you feel happy after watching, but it, it does... Actually, right into all the different stories that uh, it is one of the great uh, films of the 21st century so far. Okay, so uh, next uh, show, and we're we're hoping this is going to be a monthly thing, right? Uh, we were talking about doing uh, "Gimme Shelter," which is the uh, Rolling Stones concert documentary. And what was the other film now? Uh, Duck You Sucker, a.k.a. Fistful of Dynamite. Right. The Sergio Leone very late, um, very late spaghetti western, which, uh, um, yeah, stars James Coburn and Rod Steiger. I'm kind of excited, too, because I haven't seen either of those, so it kind of gives me something to, something to do over the next month. You're going to enjoy Gimme Shelter. Yeah, I if you liked Woodstock and uh, whatnot, the Monterey Pop Festival documentary, you're, you're going to like it. The dark, mean, the 60s are over, man, conclusion <laughs> yeah. to that particular trilogy. So uh, we hope that uh, you know we'll give you guys a month. You guys can go out, watch the movies, come back and uh, join us for another edition of uh, the Movie Club. And... Um, I guess we'll see where where it goes from here. But uh, any feedback on uh, you know the the actual show? Any suggestions for movies, maybe, and uh, technical feedback as well would be much appreciated. And I should say that I actually have Marina from Mad About Movies is pinging me right now, uh, uh, coming in a little bit uh, late. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, it won't just be for early 30s guys (laughs) around the virtual table. Hopefully we can bring uh, some other perspectives uh, into it. Definitely. So... Okay. Well, guys, thanks. It's uh, it's been fun for me. I'm looking forward to next month for sure. And we should say this is the first time we've talked ever. Well... Right, yeah. At least with Andrew, Kurt, we kind of talked at... But, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is great. We've all got wonderful chemistry together. We're all charismatic men. <laughs> okay, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Movie Club.